Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and joining me in the cave tonight are Sally Christie. Hello, hello. With her awesome Profondo Rosso Argento no one can t-shirt. See it. Maybe on. we'll put a picture of my excellent t-shirt on social media because it is very good. It, it's totes <laughs> awesome. Um, and wishing she had a Profondo Rosso t-shirt <sighs> mm. is Cerise Howard. My life has so little meaning, Paul. (laughs) But it's good to be here in the cave, don't get me wrong. It's a sad story. So sad. Um, Look, you know, I'm a tenebrae man myself. Um, On tonight's show, we run through perhaps the most acclaimed trio of films we've covered in one show all year. First, we'll paint houses with Martin Scorsese as he reunites with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci for the first time in almost 25 years and his first ever film with Al Pacino in the epic made-for-Netflix mob drama The Irishman. Then we'll find Pedro Almodovar in a reflective mood as Spain's most beloved director of the modern era reunites with his own avatar, Antonio Banderas, for the semi-autobiographical drama Pain and Glory. And if that's not enough, for our retro title this week, we'll find Isabella Gianni and Sam Neill going through the messiest separation of all time. No, really in Andrzej Zuvavsky's 1981 horror drama and one-time UK video nasty, Possession. But first, Martin Scorsese's 25th narrative feature film, The Irishman, and 40th feature film if you include Docos, is his first since 1995 with actor Robert De Niro, the man who seemed to be his muse from Mean Streets to Casino. In fact, both cast and, in both cast and crew, The Irishman seems like a reunion tour of long-time Scorsese collaborators past and present. The story that's gotten the band back together is that of former Teamster and alleged mob hitman Frank Sheeran, played by De Niro, whose chance meeting with Philadelphia mob boss Russell Buffalino, played by Joe Pesci, sets Sheeran's life on a course that leads him to protecting, befriending, and perhaps murdering once-powerful union boss Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino. Hoffa's murder remains, of course, famously unsolved, his body never found. Based on Charles Brandt's memoir of Sheeran, I Heard You Paint Houses, an expression that apparently refers to the blood that splatters all over the walls after a hit, and a phrase that appears on screens more times than the film's actual title, The Irishman takes us through the last 30 years of Sheeran's life, from doing odd jobs to carrying out alleged hits to acting as Hoffa's body man and rising through the ranks of the Teamsters, all the, while, all the way to his ignominious, anonymous final days, all the while acting as a sort of Forrest Gump of late 20th century mob history, <laughs> interacting with everyone from the Kennedys to Watergate conspirators. But what does all this posturing and power mean when you're alone and life is slipping away from you? Cerise, to coin a couple of cliches, did you find this Irishman to be a pot of gold at the end of a 209-minute rainbow or an endless field of spoiled potatoes? Grief. Um, (laughs) To be sure, to be sure. Well, I saw it as recently as late last night, uh, three and a half hours long. It didn't feel a minute over maybe two and a half, just to say it still felt long. But I was surprised by the time it ended that quite so much time had passed. Uh, It it does feel like a a culmination of Scorsese and probably his his old pals here, uh, interest and exploration of gangster film um i don't know where you can go from here this really does feel like it's uh so broad in its sweep of the infiltration of the family of of the mob in uh american sort of later 20th century life that really 
what what else is there to to do? I mean that that that, that those years, those decades, especially around the seventies, it feels like seventies um, into eighties, and and he's been there a lot before. Um, I'm not even sure if some of the, the, the gangsters name dropped in this or mentioned in passing or at least with their little stats brought up on screen as to how they were dispatched and when. If some of them have perhaps populated some of his other films, I don't know. They may or may not have. There's certainly a massive um, sort of off-screen body count. We mm. meet an awful lot of people only to be told they perish soon. And all between 1979 and 81? Yeah. I don't know what the hell happened in those three years, but there was a mass bloodletting. Well, then perhaps there is another film to be made there. I don't know, but maybe that has been covered in his other films, I can't, whether it's Goodfellas or Casino. Not um, to my knowledge, unless nah. they were pseudonyms. Yeah. Uh, but not to my I mean, knowledge. This one is very much placed in uh, actual documented history um with some very well-known um historical figures i i hadn't actually grasped quite how big jimmy hoffa was uh this film i think understands i think Scorsese understood that a lot of today's audience wouldn't necessarily know that much about him either they knew he was someone who was sort of a punchline in jokes for having never been found mm. uh, this mysterious disappearance but that the film makes him out to have been as big in American cultural life as Elvis or then the Beatles um, really does give some sense of how big a figure he was. What uh, you, you didn't see the classic uh, Danny Hoffa. DeVito, I actually didn't, Jack no. Nicholson film no. Hoffa from 1992. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen Hoffa. And then <laughs> I'm Nichols- going to do what I'm going to do. Yeah. So Nicholson chewed the scenery a bit in that, I expect. Uh, just a yeah. touch. Because yeah. Pacino gives it a fair shot here too, doesn't he? He's not- but somehow less than Nicholson. Really? Yeah. Because it's still not restrained. I mean, it's not Al... <laughs> Uh, scent of a woman owl, but no. um, mercifully, I think. <laughs> but it's still uh, a quite exuberant performance, especially when someone like Joe Pesci is totally reining it in here. Mm. And he is fantastic. I believe he was coaxed out of some form of retirement. I don't know when his last I film was. I haven't seen him in a film in a very long time. He's been in three films since the 90s. He was in, Really? And they're all kind of, well, one is in inexplicable, but in 2006 he was in The Good Shepherd for his good friend De Niro. Uh-huh. Um, and then uh, 2010's Love Ranch with what Helen Mirren, that? which is a uh, Taylor Hackford film about a Las Vegas brothel. And okay. then this. Mm. Missed that one. So he's, he's yeah, he's... Pretty much Home retired. Alone Fire? No, no. He's, he's opted out of the Home Lethal Alone Lethal Weapon something. But <laughs> pray that that never happens. Um, but this is terrific, actually. He's, 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 for me, is the anchor of this film, even more than De Niro's character. Because, um, I mean, while this might be some of De Niro's best work in a while, it's just so great seeing Joe Pesci just owning each scene with a very minimalist sense of menace mm-hmm. as a... As a uh, family head uh, he's clearly extremely influential and yet he's such a slight character he's old that, that's very interesting like i i didn't get the chance to see the irishman this week which i will talk about in a minute with it's kind of going to netflix um but his role in the goodfellas was just so intense yeah and, and just, casino as well yeah i can't believe that casino was 95 yeah. that it was that long ago, that um, to hear that he's playing something that is a bit more subtle is well, he's a very, very intriguing, very, very intriguing. Yeah, yeah he, there's, there's no um, extravagant sense of mischief and menace. and barely uh, raises his voice he doesn't, through the whole film. Yeah, wow, yeah. okay. Yeah, but it's, it's really all the more sinister for it. He, he doesn't have to. Mm. Um, 
Harvey Keitel has a little cameo. He's on a similar rank, we, we sense. Mm. He's on a similar level in the family. But we get a sense there's a hierarchy that is above them as well, that there is kind of a, a, a mob deep state, this film almost suggests, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is actually a film that could speak to a lot of right-wing conspiracy theorist nut casery <laughs> in the world at the moment because it yeah. really does suggest that the mafia have been in um, – uh, complicit in all manner of sh- American um, shenanigans um, from Bay of Pigs through to the Kennedy assassination and all sorts really suggest that their stamp is everywhere, let, let alone with Jimmy Hoffa's mysterious disappearance, mm. which this film is really heavily um, focused on. But also like links to the Nixon administration yeah. and to um, Watergate and all of this sort of business. And I mean, a lot of these theories aren't new, like um, particularly uh, Sam Giancana's role with um, Bay of Pigs and, and, um, and in terms of the mob being involved in the disappearance of Hoffa, because obviously the Teamsters and the mob were like this. Um, I'm crossing my fingers together. Um, audience uh, and uh so a lot of these are kind of popular you know kind of late 20th century american lore and in particular with the kennedys like i, I didn't this film seems to posit that the kennedy the, the mob were instrumental in the kennedys getting elected which was interesting yeah i'd heard it kind of sort of uh t- like uh, in theory but i'd never heard it this implicitly stated as this movie yeah, does. yeah. I mean, I, I, I read all the credits, as I diligently tend mm. to do anyway, but I was just thinking, surely Oliver Stone's in there somewhere because <laughs> this is getting into some real conspiracy theory. Yeah. So, but I understand it's an adaptation of a book, which I presume much of this is drawn from. Yeah, well, this is this is something interesting about this because uh, you might have noticed during my intro I used the word alleged a lot because <laughs> the book is uh, a, 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 a transcription or, or a, you know, an interview of an account of, of Frank Sheeran, who was near the end of his life in, a, in an aged care home, um, basically spilling all these, you know, I, I killed Hoffer, I did this, I did that. And then there have been articles since the book's been released in, in the lead-up to the movie that claim that it's all, it's all uh, bullshit. Mm. It's all hearsay, he's making it up, he's putting himself, like anybody, you know, anybody within a certain block radius of this, you know, places could claim these murders. And, and there's been a bit of point-counterpoint from the publishers of the book and back and forth, so the jury's kind of out. Like There are some people who buy it and some people who don't, um, which is kind of interesting, and I'm wondering whether that plays into any of the context of the film um, because the film seems to have a kind of a context of these people who believe themselves to be masters of the universe at one point in time and then not. And then, you know, when, when it comes time for us, you know, he, as they say, you know, they, he with all the toys, you know, dies, still dies, you know, like it's, it's that kind of, you know, what is all this worth? You know, if you just lived a more honorable life, you know, you'd end up in this, you know, you don't end up any better or, or you know, than that person. Um, so, and there's, you know, there's a bit of these people who kind of live off this sort of myth-making. But the thing that fascinated this was not the movie I expected, particularly after Casino and mean, and Goodfellas, uh, and even recent Scorsese pictures like The Wolf of Wall Street. I did not expect it to be so somber. Yeah. And De Niro's character is just kind of this lump of a man who sort of is looking for an opportunity and sort of, you know, looking to get in good and do right by his bosses. And he's just kind of... He's sort of a working man with him, with delusion, with some delusions of grandeur, but he's just kind of 
yeah, he's kind of this shambling, quiet lump of a guy who's, you know, prone to outbursts of violence and could have likely, you know, had had a, sort of a, you know, a, a thuggish background enough to be able to do this stuff. But is, you know, isn't the charismatic uh, sort of mob figure that is featured in a lot of other Scorsese films. And I kind of feel like this film is, in a lot of ways, a rebuke to people who say that Scorsese has spent his career glamorizing gangsters. Because this is like, this is closest to something like Donnie Brasco, where everyone's kind of breaking down and near the end and, and they're scorpions in a bucket. And, you know, I mean, and that's the scorpions in the bucket theory applies to most of Scorsese's mob movies. But this sort of down at heel kind of everything just kind of falls away and what is all this worth? Um, just a lot of dead bodies and broken lives. Yeah, and and family dysfunction, mm. um, which is a yeah. There, there's there's an elegiac tone to the film, um, and it, it, this it's 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 really curious. You mentioned all this too because I think this is as masculine a film as he's ever made. In as much as that, there are barely any women with any screen time or dialogue, uh, including his own family members. Um, which isn't to say their point of view is totally sidelined. There's a lot of um, a lot of pained looking on of, of bearing witness, mm. particularly uh, in regards to Anna Paquin's character. Yeah, who the silence seems to be part of the point. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it's yeah, it does. It's well, possibly all of the point. Yeah, there's there's not a lot else to extract from mm. it because you're not given anything else to do other than to look pained for the most part. Her character Peggy. Um, yeah, it's. It, it's curious. There's there's a just a, a real masculine melancholy suffusing the film, uh, and then there's a the whole uncanniness of the de aging technology used on uh, several of these the principal characters who are such known faces, and we've seen them age. Not Joe Pesci so much lately. We haven't seen him on screen, but De Niro, Pacino, Pacino, Pep. Yeah, Pacino. De Niro, Pacino. There's some other. Um, uh, De Niro, Pacino, Pacino, De Niro. Let's yeah. call the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there is just a an eeriness, especially to De Niro's face when he's playing a younger man, and the, the, the face looks a bit younger, but not necessarily all that much no. younger. And his body doesn't seem to have a younger physicality to it. Mm. There's an awkwardness about how he throws things. We see him throwing weapons a bit, especially into a river. Um, uh, waterways to dispose of them and it does not look like the the litheness I would expect of someone who's maybe at that time supposed to be in their 40s or 50s it's a bit mm, yeah, yeah. A sort bit murky just 40s. what age they are uh, but it, yeah it, it, I, I was a little creeped out at times by just the, the faces how much though do you think was the de-aging and how much was his weird green contacts because that was the thing that was freaking me out because for a while it's like is it the de-aging it's like no it's his eyes it looks like he has cataracts uh, and that was kind of... It's very interesting when someone a has a change in eye colour, how much it can throw you off. Yeah, well, that's, that's going to come up in a yes, film we'll discuss later. Yes, that will come up later, later on. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we see a lot of De Niro's trademark grimace, that weird mm. thing he does with his chin and his lower lip and yeah. that, that sort of gurning he, he's done for <laughs> decades now. Yeah, there's a very particular gurning, easily parodied. Um, not great on radio, but... Um, <laughs> Easily parodied. We'll put what? that on social yeah. media too. Yeah. And that's exactly all doing the, the Robert, yeah. the De Niro gurning. Yeah. Um, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's just, uh, it was in that uncanny valley mm. for me. No. It really was a, a little weird. Right, okay. I, I sort of fell into it because it was sustained. Yeah, you certainly had time to. Um, and any sort of makeup effects 
say more traditional methods, you still have that game you play with the film. You go, all right, I can see that's a, you know, a wig or a, mm. a wonky beard. So it's, so it's just still going going along with it, but it still yeah felt a little a little odd to me. It didn't quite gel. Um, then because cause with that, you have to accept a bit of a generation gap between him and Joe Pesci, which. It's just awkward. It mm. doesn't, and, and Harvey Keitel, who I believe is actually eighty in real life. Yeah, is just, yeah apparently yeah, something around these that. folks yeah, are it's old now. Yeah, Pacino's yeah. been in his late seventies. De Niro's seventy-five or so. I think mm. Scorsese oh too. Thereabouts. Scorsese turns seventy-seven I'm next week. You're shocked, <laughs> as the kids say. Yeah. So when some of these people are looking at roughly the same age on screen as Ray Romano, mm. who is actually fantastic in the film, he's terrific. I a, think he's building up a really terrific career as a dramatic actor. Yeah. 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 Well, comedians often have that in them to be well characters, and and to have a, a range that often surprises people when you see them not being funny per se. Um, yeah, he, he he's one of the best things in the film too, actually. Mm. Um, it was uh, Pesci's character's cousin or something. Yeah, and De Niro's lawyer. Yeah, and, but yeah, I I felt that this was sort of a very um, and 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 it's not without fun. Like there are moments, particularly between Jimmy Hoffa and another union boss named Tony Pro, played by Stephen Graham, who was a regular in Guy Ritchie and Shane Meadows' films and now has kind of become a Scorsese regular. Um, he, uh, yeah, their rivalry's hilarious. And it's very much, and again, it's one of these sort of themes about masculinity that I think runs through the whole movie. And it's almost this this game of pathetic masculine one-up, macho one-up and shit where no one, and they'll, they'll argue over the most ridiculous things, over being 15 minutes late to a lunch or whether somebody called somebody a, a slur or whether, and they just, and, you know, potentially the entire future of American unions is decided over this ridiculous argument that turns into a brawl. And it's just that kind of, and I think the weird thing is that you get to the end of this movie and I feel like it does feel like a kind of, Old white guys, your time is coming to an end. Movie, which is super interesting to come from from Scorsese, um, and I yeah, and I found it quite. I'm still thinking about it. Like it's a lot of the film is still kind of snaking throughout my head. I think it probably. I think you're right, sorry. So I think at three and a half hours, it feels like two and a half hours, and mm. I probably can see a future in this. I wouldn't know exactly what to cut, but I could see a future where this film fits snugly within three hours and still has the same impact. I think it's probably slightly overlong. But I was I found myself really um, really bewitched by it. And I think I, I I think second to Wolf of Wall Street, I think it's his best film in, in quite some time. Yeah, I don't feel so strongly about it, but um, look, I, I yeah, there's a small window of opportunity for people to see it in cinemas here. Uh, and even then only a limited array of cinemas before it goes to Netflix when people can watch it presumably till the cows come home or until someone buys out Netflix and the whole model collapses again or, or because yeah, people shouldn't take anything for granted, folks. I mean, if you want to see something on a big screen, my advice is always just see it and don't presume you'll get another opportunity. 100%. How many cinemas are screening it? So as far as I know, it's the Lido, the Classic and the Cameo. It's the um, they're that chain of, of cinemas. Do we... I mentioned before I didn't get to see this film, um, which had to do with this scheduling and its quite long runtime. <laughs> Excessive length. Yeah. Um, did that have anything to do with it being bought by Netflix, or it was it was made for Netflix? It was bought- with, with that in mind, with, with having such a long runtime. Because it is three and a half hours. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, it was bought by Netflix. It's just he had troubles financing it at a studio level, particularly in terms of the subject matter and the expensive de-aging effects. Okay, because Scorsese has 
in the past, you know, sort of said that things should be seen on a big screen. Mm. Is there? Do we know if they, this has been screened overseas? It is. Yeah. Okay, so yep. it was released right. in the US at selected cinemas on November first. Okay. So yeah, there there was a but then there was a argy bargy because of course the big cinema chains don't like the less than ninety day window, so they decided not to screen it, so they boycotted it, and so it's screening at kind of independent cinemas across the US. Mm-hmm for a three-week season before it hits Netflix on the 27th. As it is here at the Lido, the classic <laughs> and the cameo, and you can catch it there. And and at screenings are fairly regularly selling out. So it's Yeah, there was a lot of people at the 8 o'clock session, which, suffice it to say, didn't finish till midnight. <laughs> we went to the 6 o'clock, so we got out free and clear by 10. <laughs> um, so, yes, the Irishman is screening at the Lido, the classic and the cameo uh, before Netflix on November 27th. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Our second film for this evening is legendary Spanish director Pedro Almodovar's new film, Pain and Glory. Now in his 60s, film director Salvador Malo, played by Antonio Banderas, finds himself in physical disrepair, psychological discomfort and creative crisis. As an old film of his is remastered and about to be rescreened at a Madrid film festival, Salvador is invited to introduce the screening, but they'd like him to do so with the film's leading man, Alberto Crespo, played by Asia Extiandia, whom he hasn't spoken to in 30 years due to a blow-up about his performance in the film. After a fraught reunion, the two men rekindle their friendship as Alberto introduces Salvador to smoking heroin, and the two blow off the screening to get high, leading to a hilarious Q&A via speakerphone. As Salvador becomes more and more fond of chasing the dragon, uh, recreational heroin used to ease his mind and physical pain, his trips take him on reveries of memory throughout key moments of his life, having to leave his childhood home and move into a whitewashed cave house with his father and mother, the latter played by Penelope Cruz, Developing his artistic side through his school choir and learning to draw, as well as teaching a handsome labourer how to read and write, leading to a sexual awakening. In the present day, Alberto performs Salvador's biographical script about a 1980s love affair to a small audience, one of whom, miraculously, happens to be Federico, the very lover Salvador was writing about, leading him back to Salvador for a reunion. As Salvador's past and present collide simultaneously, one can only wonder, what is his current reality, what is memory, and what is cinema? Sally, did you find this film in perhaps my most horribly obvious zinger ever painful or glorious? It was glorious. <laughs> this, uh, what a beautiful film. It's interesting to look at the <laughs> pain and glory in contrast to possession, which we're going to talk <laughs> about next. Because, um, oh, this movie is just so tender and it's it's very vulnerable. Like, I, I think possession is a very vulnerable movie as well. But... Um, Look, now I'm thinking about it. They've got lots of similarities, but they've got to go there. Um, This, yeah, was a very, very tender, intimate movie, which I think Banderas was so beautiful in this film, like just such a, you know, understated, gorgeous performance. Um, It has a lot of heavy content, you know, we're looking at, you know, saying recreational drug use. We're also sort of led to this. Our, our main character is in pain a lot of the time. We see that he's dependent on a lot of pain medication, which then, uh, 
begins taking heroin because that becomes more effective. Um, is clearly dealing with depression and all, lots of stuff going on, but the way that it is contrasted with the colour blocking that's used in this film is so breathtaking. Yeah, like, I, I was thinking about Requiem for a Dream today for whatever reason and just thinking, God, I really don't like that movie. Like, I just don't like it. It's just like this, like, don't do this, don't do that in your face. And this is, you know, it has a lot of the same stuff going on, but it's dealt with in a much better way like mm. a very very beautiful way where it's it's not I wouldn't say it's a joyous film it's kind of we see this ebbing and flowing throughout um what's his name is it Salvador Salvador Salvador's yeah. um characters for through his past and through his present um yeah when he does go back through his childhood to now and it's gentle and it's beautiful and it seems realistic and, um, you know, not kind of hammed up, but I, I really enjoyed this journey of this film. It was, yeah, one of the best things I've seen this year. I loved it. Yeah, I had a, a real perfect mix of um, some real staple elements of Almodovar's more mature cinema. Mm. Uh, gone as much of the outrageousness of his 80s films, though there's always some little element of uh, wildness in there and, and uh, provocation. But really, this is quite a... It is a languid, quite somber film uh, where there are there's an element of melodrama. There are extraordinary coincidences that drive the action. Um, ext- extremely uh, beautifully art designed interiors and locations. Uh, a, a sense that some of it might be autobiographical, but we'll never know quite how much. There's, there's clearly characters here that are of sorts or of professions that we know are part of Almodovar's milieu, not least uh, the Antonio Banderas character, who is a filmmaker, who seems to have had a career that sounds a little like Almodovar's. But, I mean, will we ever know if Almodovar has himself fallen into great depressions at times and sought to treat them through self-medication, through sketchy drug deals with people he's fallen out with that have taken him into the bad parts of town? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, I don't know, but it's, it's it's such a very lovely film, and it's really rich in detail. And it is that 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 perfect mix of um, a, a, an exaggerated artfulness. I mean, is, does anyone's apartment really look that great? Well, actually, yeah, possibly well, actually, a Motivar's own one does. It's his artwork he's collected, but and uh, yeah. that is his own apartment. Is that it? It's set in, yeah. Really? Apartment is look, I got home from the cinema <laughs> watching that film, and I walked into my house, and I was like, oh, what a dump yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's there is that that yeah the, the film is so gorgeously designed that sometimes you think this cannot be real why should we take anything in this film seriously mm. because the art design as in so much of his cinema is so exquisite but uh that's part of the joy of some of the classic um hollywood but also no doubt spanish melodramas of yesteryear when everything was exaggerated emotions were often suppressed and the art design would do a lot of the emotional heavy lifting and you know banderas isn't doing a lot of that heavy lifting because his character is depressed Mm. Uh, but the emotions still bubble up to the surface with all of these recollections all these reveries it's a really exquisite piece of filmmaking Mm. he's done it again yeah For a while now, I I cottoned on to Almodovar late, but for a while now I've felt that he is one of our masters. Yeah, I feel like I I 
discovered his work quite late on as well, and he is everything he makes is exquisite. Yeah, it's just it's beautiful and insightful, and at times provocative, and mm. always playful. He's always playing with the audience, and everything feels like a dialogue. Um, and this film has a really terrific ending as well that taps into that. You're sort of playing with the audience. Um, yeah, there's. I think there is a lot of uh, obviously a lot of El Motivar's real life and DNA here, but again, as you say, Cerise, it's there's this air of mystery about it all who knows what is and what isn't you know is the act like apparently El Motivar had fallen out with Banderas for a few years over an argument over a performance um which not, one I don't know yeah <laughs> and they're not quite as yeah maybe uh, go back to the last one he made with Banderas and then the, the last one before a gap yeah and it might be that it might be that one um but yeah, so there's this whole kind of t- uh, intertextual thing going on, and and again, it's interesting. Got two films here by master filmmakers, kind of bringing the band back together to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. People who they'd worked with a lot in the past, people who for- helped forge their careers. Um, you know, Penelope Cruz is here as well, playing uh, Salvador's mother. That opening, the, not the opening sequence, but the first sequence where we see Penelope Cruz and Salvador sort of going back to his childhood, where um. Yeah, I think they're washing clothes and all the women are singing because this yes. film is very much marked by important women in his life mm. and, you know, kind of, I guess, how they've sort of shaped things for him. But, geez, that scene was so breathtaking, like absolutely incredible. Loved it. So many exquisite <laughs> things in this film. Yeah, I, it's it's hard to hard to say anything that people haven't said about this film already I mean it's yeah it, it's it's got all of those of those trademarks that make El Motivar films great that playfulness that air that air of mystery that um, yeah and I think lightly provocative in terms of its, its use of heroin in the film I've never seen heroin dealt with like yeah, that I, I film found, before I, I found that Maturely, really though. yeah it, it was I, I don't think I have either and I found it quite impressive mm. because there's the thing where a, a lot of people pain medication especially for back pain is lacking mm. and you know um, pain relief for that is very lacking so people do turn to opiates um and you know drug use can also be recreational and not just an addiction thing which we don't often see in in cinema and to have that kind of looked at in that way i, I found was quite impressive yeah, it is. It's, it's not that there isn't some sort of moral dimension to it, but it's not yep. problematized. No, it's exactly. Not, it's, it's, exactly. Um, um, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. Mm. Um, you know, there have been a lot of uh, previous filmmakers in his work. Uh, he's, he's had filmmakers as characters in his films before. Mm. He's had doubles often enough, and there's just also really interesting doubling in this, not just with the, whether Banderas is an Almodovar stand-in, but also whether the other actor who was... Banderas's character's sweetheart back in the day looks so much like Banderas yes, at times. Yeah. He's wearing similar things. The yes. beard is similar, and there's just it's that playfulness is in here as well. There's so that's something else that's been in his cinema for quite some time too. There's a bit of a meta textuality and intertextuality. This with all of, with a number of his other films, uh, and just his body of work generally. There's just that lovely play with various levels of narrative realities and actual realities and uh it's just very sophisticated but not a wank yes yeah, yeah. how do you walk that yeah. line that, that needs Pedro to be man. that needs to be put yeah. on the poster Cerise. very sophisticated <laughs> but not but a not wank Cerise yeah. like, Howard escaped for fantastic that is such a good description of this film he yeah I, he's he's just a master and if 
if you could get those, the, his um, the whole sequence where uh, Salvador and Federico come back together again in 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 um, Salvador's apartment, if you could get that sequence and bottle it, I I want one. It's <laughs> yeah. just such a beautiful vignette in, of the movie. Um, Pain and Glory is now screening at all good independent cinemas. Triple R. Andre Zuvavsky's 1981 classic Possession. Mark, Sam Neill, returns to West Berlin from a mission abroad. It's vaguely intimated that he may be a spy of some description to find his wife Anna, Isabella Jani, standing outside their abandoned uh, standing outside their apartment building rather with her bags packed, asking him for a divorce. Struggling to communicate around their young son Bob, Anna takes off for hours at a time while Mark quickly begins to unravel. As Mark tries to confront Anna about her behaviour, she becomes ever more unhinged, needing to run off to whomever she's staying with like an addict needing a fix, which enrages Mark even more. He hires a private investigator to tail her, and while while the object of Anna's thrall initially seems to be a distinctly odd man named Heinrich, played by Heinz Bennett, there's someone or something else in Anna's life that she'll do anything, even kill, to protect and serve. Cerise, what? As this is your retro pick for the week, yeah. Does your love for this resemble a Carlo Rambaldi creation? <laughs> oh, I think it may. Yeah. Um, this is one truly singular film, and it um, it will remain ever such hereafter. There's never going to be another film quite as bonkers as this. Not least because its principal architect died just a couple of years ago. Um, Zurafsky was um, a maker of phantasmagoria, um, phantasmagoric films, and this is probably the pinnacle, I think, of his bonkers filmmaking career. It's a, a film that I think it, it speaks to the moment in some really interesting ways, even though it was made back in 1981. Because mm. there's a, there's a twofold way it's speaking to the moment for me right now. One is there's an Isabella, uh, Isabella Jani focus at the a film festival happening at the moment which is why i picked this as much as anything because there is actually an opportunity to see this as it should be seen on a big screen at the astor no less this weekend coming so there's that but it's also 30 years since the berlin wall came down which means it's actually been down for slightly longer than it was up for and this is a wow. film that is very much about division by mm. walls and uh, other irrational means of separating humans even humans who love one another very much as we presume the two protagonists in this did at one point before things went really fucking weird uh which they do pretty early on in this film and it just you wouldn't think at times that this film could really ramp it up anymore <laughs> and um, yet. but having established already a sense of unease throughout and you you see a lot of of, of the wall at, uh, this was set in shot and set in kreuzberg uh, which was part of West Germany, but very hemmed in, and the East just on the other side of that wall. And, and its maker was someone of the East, a uh, Ukrainian-born Pole, uh, Polish filmmaker. I, I think apparently he may have made this one un- tapping into his own divorce as inspiration. Yes. But uh, I'm sure his divorce didn't assume the... Um, bizarre dimensions that the separation in this film between these two main characters was Sam Neill, a very young Sam Neill and Isabella Jani, uh, the, the forms that that assumes. And this is one deeply unsettling, paranoid and ultimately hallucinatory, nightmarish 
masterpiece. Um, and there, there's one sequence, I mean, there are a number of sequences that are pretty indelible, but one just involving, it sounds very simple to say, Isabella Ajani in the subway. But uh, <laughs> let loose. Yeah, let <laughs> loose. And this is about as intense and sustainedly intense um, a sequence in all of cinema as I've ever experienced and expect I ever will. It is brutalizing, harrowing in the extreme. First time I saw it, I felt like this feels like Marina Abramovich being directed by Lars von Trier. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in turn, being directed by Marina as well, perhaps as a little puppet master of Lars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's such an extremity to that that sequence. But then, um, well, that's not all, is it, Sally? No, it's not. It's um. I, I was saying to Paul before. I feel nervous even having to talk about possession because what do you say about it? It's um, a very very special movie, and <laughs> it is completely. There's there's nothing else like it. And the first time I saw this film was quite a number of years ago now, but it completely blew my mind. And I've seen it a number of times since, and it every single time it blows my mind. It is so completely batshit crazy, but there's something about it that I don't think I've ever seen captured before or since. Um, I I obviously love cinema, but there's something – I don't often feel a personal connection with films, but there is something about possession where I come away from it every time going, oh, I know that feeling from not just Sam Neill's character, um, Mark, but also Isabella Gianni's character, Anna, um, where it's this just this hyperbole of how do I, I, I can't articulate my words, there's this primal screaming that's going on, this desperation from Mark with wanting to know what's going on in a situation that he can't possibly understand and... Even though it is so completely exaggerated, I feel this movie captures the human experience more mm. than I've ever seen in any other film. Like, it, I find this really striking and I find it ageless in that way that there is just this, you know, it doesn't need to be a romantic partnership, but these this dynamic between these two that I think that every person has gone through. But, yeah, it's yeah something else, this film. It's, mm. it's incredible. And... I, I think you're right. I think it's, yeah, through this exaggerated kind of performance style and this heightened filmmaking and, and even there's just the, there's, I, I'm, we won't spoil it for people who haven't seen it, but there is a terrific title card at the start of the movie. It's like Design of the Creature by, by Carla Rambaldi. Yes. And you're like, what is that? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that's, well, wait uh, till you find out. Speaking of titles, I think it's actually just one of the greatest titles. There's, that title is doing a lot of heavy lifting there. It's loaded. So um, yep. When people think of people they're in relationships with, they often speak of having them to have and to hold. Yes. They yes. possess mm-hmm. someone else. That, that This is my partner, my husband, wife, yep. what have you. But then there's obviously also this, the more exorcisty suggestion of possession that and something has taken over. And we some... see that this both come through beautifully in this film where we, um, yeah, that kind of, you know, matrimonial control and also this possession that is perhaps somewhat otherworldly. And also just being uh, being obsessed with someone or something mm. can seem like a possession. And every everyone has everyone's experienced it. Hundred percent. Yeah, everyone has. And like I said, I don't think I've ever seen anything capture 
that feeling like this film does, like that intensity of what it feels like to actually, you know, on, on both of their sides, go through this. And, and I, I think the thing is that um, the, one of the reasons this film is so effective at that, getting to that primal heart of that human experience, is um, my partner, again, the possessive term, <laughs> um, my, my, but, uh, my partner is, was trained in physical theatre. And I've over the last you know sort of decade and change that we've been together, I've seen a lot of phys- really great physical theatre, and this film really utilises a physical theatre performance style that I haven't seen in a lot of other films, mm. particularly in the character like very much with 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 Isabella, uh, very much with Sam Neill, even more with Isabella Gianni, and even more with Heinrich. Like he's the karate. way he's just bouncing off walls, and he's got the and, and <laughs> the bizarre karate style. He's, the, he, he's, he's wonderful in this because he does because it's such an intense film. He does serve as a tiny bit of comic he relief. Is, in he, this but film. he's yeah. absolutely levity, like mm. the, the way he sort of takes everything very seriously, and the way he talks about things, and and yeah, he's he gives us a moment of levity yeah. within this insane, um, crumbling relationship. Um, there's a beautiful queer relationship at the center of this film that's completely unexpected. Um, there's, um, but oh my god! I mean, Sam Neill and Isabella Johnny just just give throw everything at this. But that, yeah. But I feel like that physical theatre performance style, where it's like everything is through the body, everything is through, um, you, like uh, emotions through gestures. Like you know, Sam Neill being non-verbal in a hotel room, but you know, because he can't. He's just rocking in a chair, looking utterly unhinged. Mm. It's um, incredible. Yeah. All of them. And the state of their costumes throughout the film, and the state of their. I mean, this is this is a film that should. I mean, it, it feels like a natural to be taught in film studies classes. Like the way division is marked in almost every frame like there's this beautiful framing where there's on their apartment you've got the front door in the middle on one side is the kitchen on one side is the bedroom and they're in different rooms it's like divided from it when when i was studying cinema at la trobe and when i was doing my undergrad i we had to pick a scene from a film that we really liked (laughs) i picked a scene from possession and everyone was horrible (laughs) it did not not go down well (laughs) Is it a scene that would spoil the film to speak of? It no, pos- no, it's it not was one the, of those. It was the electric, uh, the kitchen, oh, the kitchen knife scene. Yeah. Oh wow! But it, yeah, it went over like a ton <laughs> yeah. of bricks. It was not well received. I've always curated. Uh, I've always imagined this on a perfect double bill with Wings of Desire, which might sound quite strange in terms of their sensibility, yeah. but in terms of the divided city mm. that is that was Berlin of that era, it'd be fascinating to see one and then the other one with a hint of a utopian and very humanistic and humans are great uh, <laughs> sensibility and and, um, uh, and possession. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that would be... I think you'd probably want to scream Wings of Desire first. Yes, yeah. you yeah. would, and then hit them with possession. Yeah. And send them out Melbourne into the night. C- yeah. Melbourne Cinematheque maybe next season. God, I'd love, it would be a great double bell. One for the ages. Yeah. But there's so much going on here. And, yeah, as you say, it's set in a divided city, in a divided country. It just seeps into everything. Um, and then, you know, when this film goes to the place it goes, it's it's utterly surprising yet completely natural. It all seems to fit because everything seems born. Like this thing almost seems like a, a manifestation mm-hmm. of their emotional states. Um, the way this film uses the colour blue is beautiful. The way it, like mm. It's just... It's such a beautifully made film. Um, and 
and completely unhinged. I, I remember this film in video stores, like in the horror section with an R rating and Sam Neill carrying a bloodied woman on the cover and hearing about it being a video nasty in the UK in the early 80s. Like it was banned for many, many years. And it's so bizarre because it couldn't be more separate from so many yeah. of the other video nasties of the that, time. It's that kind of thing where it would be like if I was told about this as a child, I would have been like, I definitely want to see that movie. <laughs> and I would have rented it and gone, oh, this is so boring. Yeah. You know, because it doesn't fit into that kind of classic like cannibal holocaust or whatever else was going on. But, yeah, interesting that it was considered a yeah. video nasty. Maybe yeah. just from the artwork alone. Mm. Or maybe one other particular scene in the film. <laughs> yeah, there's one or two scenes in the film that may have been a reason. Um, but yeah, I, it, this is this is an exquisite. But it, it is absolutely an experience you have to give yourself over to, um, and particularly on the big screen. I saw it, I was lucky enough to see it at the big screen at Acme about three years ago, and it was my first viewing of the film. Um, and it just it it left me, as the kids say, shook. All yeah. <laughs> shook up, all right. All shook mm. up. Um, but yeah, it's 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 phenomenal. But yeah, so this is how to see in the thirtieth anniversary of the Berlin Wall coming down, folks. Does this uh, film? I look. I didn't rewatch Possession leading up to this because I am going to go and watch it at the Astor on Sunday. I'm very. I've never seen it on the big screen, and I'm very very excited about um, seeing it there. Does that open? I know that we see Sam Neill going to his apartment, but do, how soon into the film do we see the wall? At, he does. He goes to his window and looks it's outside, out, yeah. and there's the guy over the wall, the soldier yeah, it's, it's, over the wall, looking quite, back at him. Quite quick, quite soon. Yeah, into the, it's yeah. first five minutes. Mm, I think yeah, it's pretty that we see that divide come through. Mm. Yes, entering the apartment, and also that feeling of always being watched and always mm. being under a microscope as well. Yeah, um, and yeah, and the vague spy plot that sort of comes back into it I know. as well. Like, there's just so it's so rich, and I don't claim to even understand all of its secrets at this point. Yeah, no, me it's a very rich film. Mm. Um, yeah, it's wonderful film. It's a, it's a hell. It's yeah. It's definitely it's quite one. a ride. <laughs> <laughs> so, if that is not enough for you viewers, um, Possession is screening at the Astor Theatre on Sunday, November the seventeenth, as part of the Isabella Gianni season at the Alliance Francaise Classic French Film Festival. Uh, you are listening to Plato's Cave on Triple R with Sally Christie, Cerise Howard, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's show, we discussed the the Irishman, now screening at the Lido Classic and Cameo Cinemas in a an exclusive season, before opening on Netflix on uh, November twenty seventh. Uh, we discussed Pain and Glory, which is now screening at all good independent cinemas, and Possession, which is screening at the Astor on this Sunday, the seventeenth of November. Is there anything else that is screening as part of the uh, Isabel Jani season? I know the, the story of Adele H, the Francois Truffaut uh-huh. film, mm. is screening. Uh, Queen Margot. Oh, Queen Margot yeah. screening. What a f- um, yeah, okay. There's one called All oh, and oh, it's the one about set in the world of horse racing. Oh, I don't know. It's something. Uh, it's a <laughs> is pop- that Rachel pop- Griffiths' new move? <laughs> That's a popular subject right now. Um, and they're off or something like that, it's called. I've never heard of it. Um, it's clearly, they got past the first four and they're like, oh, we don't have the rights to anything else. Uh, <laughs> but yes, uh, yeah, Queen Margot, uh, Story of Adele H and, and Possession, definitely the highlights of that season. You can listen back to our show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Plato's Cave page at rrr.org.au right now. You can subscribe to the Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Next week, our intrepid cavers will explore 
Mike Flanagan's sequel to Stephen King's sequel to uh, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's sequel to The Shining, <laughs> Doctor Sleep. I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it's but... like he's gotten King and Kubrick and put them together and but made them very it's probably Mike Flanagan-y. Be a hot mess, but hopefully it's not. I've oh, heard no. good things. Yes, yeah, so I actually. Uh, the uh, documentary "I Am Not a Bird," uh, which features four uh, uh, women being married in different countries and different cultures, and juxtaposing those. I am no bird. Not I to be no confused bird. with the Dushan Makovaya film. Man yep. is not a bird. Yeah. <laughs> I am no bird. I am no bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a whole uh, other thing. And to do some like a Vave thing, I mean. And for our retro title, we'll uh, be going back to 1933 with the most asshole of <laughs> universal horror characters, <laughs> The Invisible Man, as played by Claude Rains. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing the Plato's Cave podcast, Killer Carl Chapman for paneling the show, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing our show. Thanks for listening to Triple R's Plato's Cave, a weekly radio show of informed, passionate and fun film criticism. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch with us via the Plato's Cave Facebook page, Twitter or via the Triple R website.